0: Today's show is sponsored by Mack Weldon. They make the most comfortable hoodies, sweatpants, underwear, and socks you'll ever wear. I'm wearing them now. That's why I sound so comfortable. Brian Navenberger, can you attest I'm wearing socks? Those are some nice socks. Those are some nice socks. They look comfortable. I did not prompt him to say that. I mean, I kind of prompted him to say that. But they're awesome. They're made of naturally antimicrobial fiber, so I smell great as well. They are my favorite podcasting socks. I pay for them with my own money. You can get 20% off by going to MacWeldon.com and using the promo code Recode. That's MacWeldon.com, promo code Recode. If you don't like them, you can keep them, and Mac Weldon will send you your money back. That got Brian's attention because it doesn't make any sense, but it works. Go to MacWeldon.com, use the promo code Recode, MacWeldon.com, promo code I'm not recode. wearing those socks. I feel at a disadvantage. You can wear them when you get home. You order them. <laughs> Maybe we'll set you up with a freebie. We gave uh, Glenn Beck some freebies. I'm not sure he knew what to do with them. <laughs> maybe you can put them to better use this is Recode Media with Peter Kafka that man laughing is Brian Nappenberger. did I get your name right on the first try that's right awesome hooray for me podcast <laughs> is over um, Brian is here because he's got a new movie coming out on Netflix probably the day that you are listening to this Brian the name of this movie has changed a couple of times what's the current name uh, is Nobody Speak Trials of the Free Press Nobody Speaks Trials of the Free Press Common parlance. this is the Gawker versus Hulk Hogan documentary movie it's a documentary it's not fiction Seems pretty dystopian though. Many of you who are listening to this podcast will remember the Hulk Hogan versus Gawker trial, which concluded just about a year ago. Um, then on went on for a while. Eventually, Gawker went into bankruptcy. Now on by Fusion. It seems crazy. It seems like this happened years ago. Yeah. And so you made that movie in between sort of the end of the trial and now, yeah, basically, Less than that, right? Yeah, this thing was in Sundance. That's beginning of this year. So, how quickly did you make this movie? Yeah, it's been just under a year. Yeah, so it's um, we we started. You know,
1: I, I was really interested in the in the trial. I thought the Hulk Hogan Gawker trial was just fascinating. You're a professional just, documentarian. This is what you do. This is what I do. Yeah, Um, So I was super fascinated by it. I thought just by itself was pretty interesting. It was the first time a sex tape case like this ever
0: went to trial. Actually went to trial, yeah.
1: And, um, you know, as salacious and as tabloidy as that all sounded, it was pretty clear that there were some big picture things at at stake here. I mean, privacy versus First Amendment. So I was captivated by it, it. But really the documentary kicked in. After this 140 million dollar verdict, which was paired with a, a requirement for Gawker to put up 50 million right away, that right. was the death sentence of Gawker.
0: So let's let's back all the way up. If you weren't following this for some reason, again, you probably have some recollection of Hulk Hogan sex tape Gawker trial. But the trial was a was a privacy trial. That's right. A uh, suit brought by Hulk Hogan mm-hmm. for a blog post uh, Gawker put up years ago. Mm-hmm. Most people probably did not read it, saying, "Here's a Hulk Hogan sex tape. You can look at it." that was that. Hogan's lawyer told him to take it down. They didn't. Things went on. Gawker gets sued frequently, or used to get sued frequently, and things would get settled, and people would go away. This one did not go away, and eventually went to trial. Started, it was going to go to trial a couple years ago, and then finally went to trial last year. And so you were you were drawn to this right away. Thought, this is an interesting story.
1: Yeah, really by itself. It, it, you know, it's not an easy story. You know, I had some sympathy for Hogan's case, but... Because uh, you would not like to have your sex tape put on the internet. Yeah, presumably, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I see where he's coming from. Uh, so, you know, I, I just thought there was, it was something that was just really, really compelling. Um, it was kind of at the ba- boundaries of acceptability and speech and all of that. Um, but it really it became something very different after the big verdict, and then it was revealed that Peter Thiel was actually funding uh, Hulk Hogan's case. To me, that changed the story significantly.
0: Right. I mean, had Roger Ailes not been pushed out of Fox News... And uh, preceded by all sorts of uh, sexual harassment claims. And had Donald Trump not won the election last year, this would have been the big story of last year. Yeah, I think so. Um, Somehow it seems like in my mind it's almost been sort of memory wiped a bit. I think partly because of the shock of the election. And every day is sort of a new outrage or yeah. question mark about what's going to happen to the country and, by the way, the press as well. Now we're, we're, we're in June 2017. Do you feel like people need to be reminded about what happened last year? I do. Uh, yes.
1: And I think because, you know, you could never – One of the things that was clear to me right away is that you couldn't separate the dynamics of this trial from this larger, bizarre uh, election cycle that we were experiencing. I mean you saw right away in the trial this kind of uh, hatred of the media. The judge, Pamela Campbell, actually talked to the jurors somewhat inappropriately but in a lot of people's eyes about – saying she was concerned about the Mm -hmm. state of online journalism and and all of that. So the trial, you you felt immediately this kind of – that the media in some ways was kind of on trial. And of course, in the background, this was the beginning of the Trump phenomenon, right. really. And, for, and he, a part of his rise is really fueled by a, a hatred of the media.
0: The Gawker team had said for a while, because again, this trial was supposed to happen a year earlier, saying, look, it, it, this is going to get tried in Florida against our wishes. And we're going to lose. Yeah. We're going to lose because it's going to be the New York Jewish, Austrian pornographer website operator is going to lose in the Florida courtroom but clearly we're going to win on an appeal so this is a big pain in the ass it's very expensive but we're going to get through it and I thought they were almost sort of enjoying the sort of like spectacle of it up into the, the run-up of the trial, again, proceeding when – they, when they originally thought they were going to have the trial, they were inviting the press and people like myself and they were sort of making the case for why this was fine. And it seemed um, – if you followed Gawker at all, it seemed like, all right, this is a story for them. They're in the middle of the story, but this is a story for them. And, and in the end, this will be a spectacle, but that's sort of what they thrive on. And then it was surprising at the end when actually, oh, no, they didn't survive at all. Yeah, They were imploded. Then you had the uh, – I'm telling your story for you. You had the Peter Thiel thing, like, like like a sort of pro wrestling reveal where he sort of pops up at the end and says, ah, ha, ha Right. Takes the mask this off. Is, this is actually me. You've been fighting these entire time. It's really not Hulk Hogan. Yeah. And then that's sort of what, what kicked the movie off for you.
1: Yeah, that definitely kicked the movie off. And I think that environment in Florida was significant. I mean, this was Hulk Hogan's hometown. He was in front of jurors, you know, from hometown juror. And uh, you know you have clips of him, and, and you see him talking about the first time he went up against Andre the Giant, and the first time he became champion, and, yeah. and all of these kind of uh, legendary stories in wrestling, and then suddenly cut to Nick Denton, who's talking about how he used to um, you know his great story is how he used to uh, take the train to Budapest to pick up Wired magazine. And, uh, you know, you really had a, a clash here and you felt that in the courtroom. And yeah, as I said, I feel like this was kind of echoed in the, in the larger culture in general.
0: Yeah, I, I just assumed for a long time that everyone was in on the joke. Gawker was definitely in on the joke, but then Hulk Hogan was in on the joke. And this was, and I think, I think the Gawker people sort of figured that eventually they would pay him some amount of money and it would go away and they would have regretted doing the story. But that was the part of the deal being Gawker as you wrote those stories occasionally. Do you get criticism from people for not coming down harder on Gawker for either publishing the tape or other journalistic misdeeds, or misdeeds is the wrong word, for other inappropriate posts that they put up?
1: Yes. You know, I realized pretty early on in this that I could uh, criticize Gawker for an hour and a half and probably wouldn't be enough for some people. (laughs) Gawker clearly, in some ways, they invited a kind of hatred to them, and people are very, very polarized. Some people love Gawker, read it every day. Some people hate Gawker, but read it every day. And some people uh, hate it, but have never read it, don't really understand the tone and and the kind of position that they had. I hope in the film you get that. I mean, I tried to get that. Um, I tried to portray that that role that they play in the press.
0: Yeah, you reference it and, and you've got Floyd Abrams talking a lot about saying, famous First Amendment lawyer saying, you know, you don't get to pick your First Amendment defendants. Yeah. The whole point of the First Amendment is it covers unpleasant, outrageous speech that you don't want to defend. That's the whole point of it. I did get the sense that while the trial was going on, especially if, if you knew people in New York media, if you talked to four people, at least two of them had been – Bloodied in, Gaw- in Gawker yeah. at some point, or, or knew someone had been. And there was a. People didn't want to say it out loud, certainly not in print, but they would tell you probably like, they would say, I'm not unhappy that these guys are getting beat up in court. It's kind of it's a nice payback. And then once they were they got a death sentence, essentially, of this, of this verdict, then there was a real debate about, all right, do they deserve to die? But it was, I mean, even in New York media circles where people should be as pro Gawker as you possibly could on First Amendment rights, there's still a lot of ambivalence. About the publication, let alone if you take this discussion over to Silicon Valley, where people—it's funny because very thin-skinned people because they did they did did, did very little reporting, frankly, out in Silicon Valley. They did a handful of stories about Peter Thiel and And primarily Vayner and Gizmodo. Yeah, and there wasn't that much, frankly. Mm. I mean, certainly not the kind of grief that you know an average run-of-the-mill, sealess celebrity might have gotten from Gawker. But those there's a real debate there on that side of the, the fence about whether or not it was appropriate for that thing to get to get smashed. Practically, how does this work? So you you decide on what date I'm making this movie? I think I was I was convinced by the by the time it was revealed
1: that Peter Thiel was behind the case. I knew I wanted to do it. So into that's this. late May Yeah, yeah. twenty sixteen.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then what's the process? You say... We
1: start reaching out to people. We start so you, You've got for, your own production company. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do so, you have
0: to get funding to do this, or you've got enough resources where you can at least start production of something like this without... We had enough
1: resources somebody? to get started, and then we started looking for funding. We got a little bit here and there. Um, it was lean at first, for sure. Um, and uh, But we just kind of d- dove in and started asking people for interviews, just getting their take on things, um, looking for every bit of archival footage we could possibly find, starting trying to understand the story in a deeper way ourselves, and, and we dug in right then. And then so that most of the summer, that's what we, that's what we did.
0: And you're reaching out to the principals. You're reaching out to Nick Denton yeah. cetera, at, at that time.
1: Yes. Yeah. 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 For
0: sure. And we talked to, um, yeah, we got a lot of
1: people right off the bat. One person that's not in the film is Peter Thiel. We tried very hard to get him in the film. Join, join the club. Um,
0: yeah. I mean, we, we probably asked him six or seven times. Um, we've got great footage of Nick Denton sitting next to an empty chair. Exactly. That we that's asked kind Peter of We actually in.
1: thought about maybe including that in the film yeah. uh, when uh, Kara entered Interviews, Nick in Yeah. Yeah.
0: And then is the thought, well, this is happening. This is, this story is still going on as you're reporting it. Mm-hmm. This is something that we can't put out in two years. We've got to sort of rush it through, or is this the normal time frame for you to make a documentary?
1: It felt, I'm, I'm, uh, well, yeah, I'm a little fast com- by comparison maybe worker. to some yeah. of my friends uh, who are documentary filmmakers. Um, but it did feel very urgent, you know, the, that this story just felt like a real echo to this, this, what we were seeing in the Trump campaign. And, of course, uh, you know, we started this, it was before Peter Thiel gave money to Trump and uh, spoke at the RNC. And,
0: so it's uh, ramping up, the urgency of the story is ramping up as you're starting the movie because not only is now Peter Thiel a Hulk Hogan backer, but he's speaking at the Republican National Convention. Yeah. And uh, these things are just deeply,
1: deeply intertwined. We also cover the Las Vegas Review Journal story, the Sheldon Adelson secretive purchase of right.
0: the paper, um, which, which happened before the Gawker trial, just before the trial. Your thought trial. was these are thematically related. Yes. Do you want to remind people what happened in, the, in that story? Uh,
1: in that story, the the um, the reporters at the at the Review Journal were all called into a room, big company meeting, so and the they were low, told biggest paper in Nevada, biggest so paper in Nevada, local but, Las Vegas paper, and significant uh, paper in the West. You know, an important paper. Uh, they were called into this big meeting and they were told that their paper was sold and And it uh, hadn't been for sale and it hadn't been for sale. That's right. And they were shocked uh, as you would be if that was your paper or your company at all, you know, company you worked for. So they, first thing they asked was, well, who, of course, who bought our paper, who is our new owner and what are their expectations? And that's particularly important if you're a reporter. And the answer that came back was, don't worry about it. You know, this is uh, they don't just, want you to work. Don't worry your heads about it. Just, just, just Exactly do your what you should
0: not tell a reporter.
1: And I mean, that's the that's the worst thing you could say yeah. to a reporter. So they immediately, I mean, after they left the meeting on the way back to their desks, they started trying to put this together. And so we follow
0: that story how they uncovered their new boss, basically.
1: And the stakes are very high because they might they
0: might lose their jobs, right? And the conclusion is it's Sheldon Adelson, yeah, billionaire casino magnet, again Republican power broker. Who has basically bought the paper in large part to suppress it, to suppress reporting about him, and to control the reporting about him and, and whatever he does in the casino business?
1: They would, they would say no, but I think that's a fair assessment. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, I think it's yeah, it's about as fair as you can get. Uh, <laughs> well, th-
1: there's reports that, for instance, they've uh, reporters have had, been asked to put you know chunks of text into their stories unedited on certain stories, things like that.
0: So then the l- sort of last component of the movie is Trump. Mm -hmm. And so you've got footage in there going up past the election, right up uh, past the inauguration, right? Because you've got Sean Spicer coming in and saying the thing that you saw with your eyes is not what you saw. That's right. Black is white. This is the biggest crowd ever. So you were still making this movie up through late January. Yeah,
1: the most dramatic part of that is we actually managed to—in uh, hindsight, I sometimes wonder how we'd this off, but the, um, we, we premiered at the Sundance Film Festival, and we had— uh, Which some, is in late January, which right? Which is late January, yeah. and actually started on the same day as the inauguration. So, But we premiered that next Tuesday, and we managed to get some of the inauguration— Footage into the film before for so, a screening. So, so is so okay. is
0: the version that I'm seeing what you submitted to Sundance?
1: No, we and we, we changed it since then. Okay. We, we updated it a little bit. So we put some new uh, material in there. The the. Um, you know, alternative facts and stuff came right. out after that. The the thing you mentioned about the the inauguration crowds, um, this is the largest inauguration crowd. Period. Right. Uh, things like that, and then um, we shifted and changed the ending a little bit to kind of make our point a bit more. Um, we
0: spent some time on the ending, just making but in the meantime, ending. you'd shown the film at Sundance. Netflix had bought the film, yeah. reportedly for two million dollars. I can't confirm. Can't But you're (laughs) nodding and winking and rubbing your head. You're not doing. Give you a glow Um, I want to talk about Netflix, and I want. I want to talk about how to make a movie. I want to talk a little bit about Trump. But let's pause for a second so we can hear a word from one of our fine sponsors. Today's show is brought to you by Legal Zoom. You know that running a business requires lots of things. Requires lots of time. You don't want to spend your time and your energy on your legal stuff. That's why there's Legal Zoom. More than a million Americans have used LegalZoom to start their own businesses, but you can do much more with LegalZoom. There's a nationwide network of independent attorneys that can answer your day-to-day legal questions about your business. That stuff is complicated. We're talking about things like trademark, employment laws, lease agreements. It's all difficult if you're not a lawyer, so why not talk to a lawyer instead? LegalZoom can help. They will get you the legal help you need, but they will not bill you by the hour because LegalZoom is not a law firm. Go to LegalZoom.com today. Be sure to enter the code MEDIA. You get special savings, and that's how they know that I sent you there. Go to legalzoom.com, use the promo code MEDIA. Today's show is also brought to you by TransferWise. Do you ever send money internationally? If you do, you know it's expensive, it's time consuming, and you can get a very lousy exchange rate and not even know it. So the next time you need to make an international money transfer, you should use TransferWise. They give you a great exchange rate, you pay one small upfront fee, you know exactly what you're getting. It's easy and fast to do this. Setting up a payment is simple and fast. TransferWise is founded by two friends who were Estonian immigrants, but they were sick of being ripped off when they sent their money home. So they came up with a quicker, cheaper, easier way to do it, and you get the benefit. Today, TransferWise lets millions of people and businesses all over the world send money internationally. See how much you can save at transferwise.com. There's an app for Android and, of course, for iOS. Once again, that's TransferWise, W-I-S-E dot com. Transfer like, I'm going to transfer money from one country to another. Wise as in, I'm pretty smart. TransferWise.com. Back here with Brian Knappenberger. Brian, remind us of the name of the film one more time. Nobody Speak, Trials of the Free Press. And it used to have Hulk Hogan and Gawker in there. Yeah, our working title was Hulk Hogan, Gawker, and the Trials of the Free Press. And did the movie change? And that's why the title changed, or you just thought this is a better title? No, just shortening
1: it. Yeah, more than anything. I mean, the, we the only thing we changed since Sundance was um, we, we added a couple of things. We realized pretty soon that this could go on for a long time, and yeah. we had to find a stopping point. So we we sort of found a stopping point, and then we just kind of um, shifted the
0: ending a little bit. If you saw it at Sundance, you might you might notice, you might not. So one thing I, I thought about a lot when I was watching the movie it's a good movie. You guys should all watch it. You all have Netflix subscriptions, so it's free for you. It was Starting with the Las Vegas review with, with the, with the chronology. Story, was, with that yeah. chronology, and then going to the Gawker trial, and it turns out it's Peter Thiel setting mm-hmm. up a blueprint for how billionaires can control the press. Moving on to Trump, moving into the stuff Trump is saying pre inauguration, and he's telling CNN, you're fake news. There was a ton of angst. Leading up to the Trump's inauguration and then after the inauguration about what he was going to do to the press and what was going to happen to the press and how he was going to roll back press protections. And he was talking about re- removing libel rest- – or changing libel laws and they were going to move the press corps out of the, the White House, et cetera. And it seemed like, oh my god, they're going to lock everything down. Mm-hmm. We're now not that far past that time period. But it seems like there's a whole different atmosphere concerning the press, which is, oh, we've got a great press. At least a couple of very, very strong newspapers, the New York Times and Washington Post, racing daily to produce amazing scoops about the inner workings of the Trump administration. I have no doubt that Donald Trump means ill will towards the press when he's not courting it. Mm-hmm. But it seems like actually, this is a, if you're worried about the Constitution, you're worried about the free press, you might feel a little better in mid to late June than you would have a few months ago. Do you share that perception?
1: I do. I have a little kind of ray of hope. Um, I I say that very cautiously, though, because I I do think even in the last couple of months... We've seen the effect—a kind of wave of hostility, also with yes. the press. I mean, you know, you see, you have instance like the reporter who was trying to ask a question of Tom Price, the new Health and Human Services yep. uh, director, uh, was The arrested Guardian for reporter that. And and was body slammed. The reporter was body slammed. I mean, with Greg Gianforte, yeah, who then he, said it never happened in the sense that, well, and has since. And then sorry, actually, I then, have done that. right, he denied that it happened yeah. or that it was the reporter's fault. But actually, the reporter was doing exactly what he should be doing, yep. asking a question about health care to a then
0: congressional. A Republican candidate. so And that strain um, of hostility towards the press, as you document in there, because you've got Nixon, yeah. starting with Nixon, been a sort of feature of Republican politics for decades, certainly accelerated dramatically in the last few years with mm-hmm. Trump. Yeah. To me, my, 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 the thing that makes me super uh, cynical and depressed about the press isn't about restrictions of the press. It's that there's a large chunk of the country supported by lots of different kinds of publications and news outlets that believe in a false reality because that's what they see in here. Um, so all the work, work the Times and The Washington Post and CNN and BuzzFeed are doing, uh, it's not even that negated. It doesn't exist in, I don't know, a third of the country, 40% of the country. They just don't see it or they they say it doesn't matter. I agree. And I also think that's complicated by the fact that we've lost a lot of um,
1: press in communities across the United States. I think it's one of the reasons why I kind of wanted to include the, La- the Las Vegas Review-Journal story is I think that – you know, there's a time in which there was uh, lots of you know, competing, two or three competing yeah. newspapers in every major metropolitan area. Very healthy, competitive press, and uh, I think that's largely gone now. And I think that contributes to that problem. Right.
0: So not only did you have competitive press, but uh, I mean, you had in a lot of places you had multiple outlets. Mm-hmm. You know, there's yeah. one, and frankly, it was it was a little bit bracing to to see that. Oh, wow, the Las Vegas paper really had really good reporters up until yeah. the time Sheldon Adelson bought it, because I think in a lot of communities that. that because of the economics of the internet, these things have been sort of hollowed out. Yeah, there's a lot of places that wouldn't have had as strong as reporting staff as the Las Vegas paper did to begin with. Yeah, I'm uh, very worried about that. So, I mean, is there is there any part of you that looks at the movie you made and finished in late January and says, eh, I don't know, maybe that it, maybe I would have changed something already?
1: Not really. You know, I did. I, I cut. I, I followed the Mother Jones story, for
0: instance, the,
1: um, that they were also sued. I was uh, a
0: Montana billionaire, a, Idaho? Uh, Idaho Idaho billionaire, Idaho billionaire, yeah,
1: named Frank Vandersloot. So he. Uh, sued them, they were able to raise money from their subscribers and and they won that case which is which is great um but no, I feel like it 's I feel like it just gets more and more prescient, to be honest, um, as the days go by. Although I do, you know, I do have a little bit of a ray of kind of hope in some of this. I, I do think the Washington Post is clearly doing great work. Uh, New York Times is doing great work. Apparently, subscriptions and readership is up at both right. papers. Um, there seems to be even beyond them uh, a kind of remembering what they're there for. In a way, you know, uh, I think there's legitimate criticism of the press. It has gotten too corporatized, too cozy with uh, power that it's for too long traded, uh, you know, softball stories for access to power and celebrity. And I think if what Trump does is remind everybody why they're here and what a strong, vibrant press is there for to question authority surface the truth uh, speak truth to power that sort of thing I think it's, it could be a good thing
0: this is your third broadly defined internet culture movie right mm-hmm. or yeah. at, least you, at least you've done three of these One yeah. of Aaron Swartz yeah long form features yeah and uh, one on Anonymous, That's right. Is it happenstance that you end up there, or is there a particular affinity you have for this stuff? I'm
1: fascinated with this. I mean, I'm fascinated with technology, particularly how it's shifting and changing, how we communicate, how our private data is being stored, and how that sort of change is affecting what I guess you'd call more kind of traditional notions of human rights and civil liberties and all that. So where those things are grinding, where the pressure's the the greatest there, uh, I feel like there's really
0: interesting, relevant stories. You're making traditional long-form documentaries, 90-minute-long yeah. features about internet culture, which is stereotypically sort of short attention span and nothing matters and it's a meme today and you've forgotten about it tomorrow. Do you think ever – well, maybe 90-minute-long features is not the way to do it. Maybe I should do – Two minute dong documentaries or something. Maybe I should be a meme creator. I've thought of that and have done a fair amount of small
1: short stuff. But I actually think that no, there's quite a hunger, uh, including in that that community, for longer form, serious looks at, it at what's happening. Because it doesn't exist, and and because, I mean, look, I, I think uh, anonymous, the rise of anonymous, that's an important part of. Not just hacker culture. That's an important part of human culture. This is a new phenomenon in some ways, or was, and uh, so I, I think these things deserve a longer form, uh, serious look at them. I mean, I, I sort of feel like things are—you know—too often we say, "Oh, that's the hacker, uh, programmer, coder, geek world, or something," as though
0: that's separate than the world we, we yeah. live in. But you might have been able to say that a few years ago, yeah, but it's—you pre- it's know—now when you've got not. President Trump retweeting Pepe the Frog memes, yeah. I don't think he knows what he's doing. Yeah. (laughs) I'm 99% sure he doesn't know what he's doing, but he's retweeting Pepe the Frog memes.
1: Yeah this it, is the world we live in we're now. here it's, and we have to take it seriously it's not it's not some separate world of geeks and hackers it's uh, It's.
0: It's. you look at your chances are first thing you do in the morning is
1: look at your phone or check the internet and last thing you do before you go to bed the same thing
0: you want to keep making documentaries it seems like a, it now is a good time to make documentaries you've got a Netflix writing checks Amazon's writing checks yeah. I'm sure there are other folks writing checks
1: yes I love this form I love I love telling these kinds of stories and I think documentaries are great you know um, and, and you know it's it's a a time as a documentarian where you can you can kind of move more quickly you can go deeper into subjects Um, that's because technology
0: allows you to do that yeah
1: technology cameras are a little easier to get at editing is a little easier platforms are a little quicker Um, so I think and What's important about documentaries is they're independent,
0: right? That's that's the key. Element. You didn't need anyone's permission to go make this. Yeah, movie. You, and
1: you can, and you may, you can dive into stories that maybe people don't think may not, you know, the sort of traditional corporate media might not be able, might not a story they might be not be willing to tell.
0: Yeah, but again, Netflix will write you a check for that. Uh, I mean, do you do you think that this is a period in time, and then at some point Netflix stops writing these checks, or they they restrain themselves, and it's harder to get this kind of thing made?
1: Well, I think that what they've proven and HBO and others have proven is that there's a real audience for this. So, um, you know, I've been making documentaries long enough to know that things ebb and flow and that there's, a, there's different platforms yeah. and stuff. But uh, there, there's really right now it feels like a very strong resurgence of just platforms for, of interest for this. It's I mean, great there's a for real me, the audience. movie watcher.
0: So. Thank yeah.
1: You. I mean, look, people are, people are hungry for this. And I think they're also hungry for good journalism. You know, and and so I think that there's a place for that as we move forward. I
0: feel like that's going to kind of come back. Cheers to that! I want to end the interview there, but I should ask you, what's what's next? What's the next? Maybe
1: we're we're looking at a couple things, um, still in this deep in this kind of tech world. So at uh, your pace, this thing will be out in like four months. right? Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, look at this. Let's get this out first. All right. I'll, I'll
0: let you get out the door so you can get back to. Maybe by right.
1: next week, I'll be on that.
0: Brian, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot for having me. And thanks for you Big guys. Fan for of listening. Thank you. I love having these conversations. If you like listening to them, good news. We've got plenty more. I talked to Reed Hastings, who runs Netflix at the Code Conference recently. You can go listen to that. Michael McKean from Better Call Saul. Mel Gaiman is doing American Gods. I guess he did American Gods. It's all over. Anyway, it's all free. It's all available to you at Apple Podcasts. Can't call it iTunes, or they will come kill you. Google Play, Spotify. You're available everywhere. Go get it. Tell people that you like it. That's all we ask. Thank you to our sponsors. We love our sponsors. Mac Weldon, LegalZoom, and TransferWise. Thanks to Digital Media, who sells all those ads. Thanks to my producers, Beth O'Connell, Eric Johnson, my editor, Chris Basil. The concept of equal time is no longer with us, but if you have two kids, you still have to have some equal time. So you guys have heard from Benjamin Kafka, who's now nine. This is, this is Kafka number two. Introduce yourself. Jonah. Jonah. How old are you, Jonah? Seven. What do you think of this interview?
1: It was very funny, especially the part about Sean Spicer and Donald Trump. Jo- Jonah's got his own
0: podcast coming on a different network. Thank you, Jonah. Thanks to you guys. Thanks again, Brian. Thanks Take care. That.